You're listening to the Fix the Money, Fix the World Show on the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast Network. Here's your host, Luke Mickich. Welcome back to this week's episode of the podcast, guys, and it should really be called a debate, not a podcast, because today I'm going to be playing an interview where I had the pleasure of appearing on the Macro After Dark YouTube channel that is ran by two young fellas named Josh and Justin. Uh, we're all good friends, so we had a really, um, we had lots of fun in this podcast, had a little bit of a debate on Bitcoin versus crypto, as well as kind of talking about GameStop and why I don't believe it's going to short squeeze the hedge fund billionaires all over again like it did in 2021. Uh, we obviously talk about macroeconomics as well. Josh is actually uh, the sole researcher for George Gammon's YouTube channel. Uh, for those of you who don't know George Gammon, he's got a channel of about nearly half a million subscribers right now. Josh is the sole researcher for him. So he's very clued into macroeconomics. So we obviously talk about the sustainability of the financial system. Uh, we talk about all things Bitcoin, macro, stocks, and crypto as well. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. But let's first do a little bit of housekeeping. Before we get into it, we better hear from today's show sponsor, who is Hodling Apparel, the best Bitcoin and freedom-oriented clothing brand in the space. Trust me, guys, I've been in the Bitcoin space for five years now, and it's damn hard to find some good Bitcoin clothing. And like me, the two founders of Hodling Apparel were endlessly looking for more wearable, everyday Bitcoin clothing until they realized they could just make their own brand and that's exactly what they did. As you can see on screen here guys, they offer a wide variety of sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, hoodies for every type of Bitcoiner, male or female, whether they are loud maximalists or low-key sovereign individuals. So whether you're headed to the next conference or family reunion, get yourself some gear at hodlingapparel.com to spread the Bitcoin message with style. You guys can get 20% off if you use the promo code BitcoinMadeSimple20. And if you are a first-time purchaser at Hodling Apparel, you can also get a 15% off on your first purchase over at Hodling Apparel. You do have to use those codes separately, but I highly recommend their gear. I can't wait for the ungovernable t-shirt to get in. That is my personal favorite. You can get it in men's or women's. So hodlingapparel.com check them out guys now the second item on the agenda is the bitcoin day conference is coming guys it is 31 days away as you can see on screen here it's going down in denver colorado in 31 days i know a lot of bitcoiners missed the bitcoin miami 2022 conference that went down earlier this year i think that was in april and let me tell you it was amazing. 25,000 Bitcoin is all in the one location. It was incredible. Bitcoin Day is looking to replicate a similar experience, just on a smaller scale. They are an up-and-coming Bitcoin conference. Um, and obviously, you have some world-class speakers here. You've got Natalie Brunel. You've got Adam O from Upstream Data. You've got uh, Adam Meister. And you're also going to be putting up with my big ugly mug. I'm going to be ranting and raving there in Denver, Colorado. So you guys can use my promo code Luke to get 10% off your tickets for the Bitcoin Day conference in Colorado. Highly recommend you guys get around it. There's been some really great things said about the earlier Bitcoin Day conferences that have been happening all across America. So Bitcoin Day, Denver, 
Check it out, 31 days. Now, our third show sponsor for today is the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Guys, as you can see on screen, look at how small, simple, slick, and sexy that thing is. It is, as I say all the time, the easiest hardware wallet I've used. I've used them all. I've used cold cards, I've used ledgers, I've used trezors. I've used these complicated desktop wallets to make multi-sig setups. Trust me, they're a pain in the ass. Go and get yourself, or even a loved one, a simple Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Okay, guys, it's a Bitcoin only hardware wallet. That's one of the great reasons I love it. And you guys, you guys have seen the news recently. You can't leave Bitcoin on an exchange. Okay, Celsius just halted all of its users' funds recently, saying, "Guess what? Sorry, guys, not your keys, not your coins." We're going to use your Bitcoin that's deposited on our platform to bail out our bankrupt, gambling, speculative asses. That's what Alex Mashinsky is doing with your Bitcoin. And let me tell you, that's what all exchanges are doing with your Bitcoin. That's why BlockFi just had to get bailed out by FTX. $250 million uh, BlockFi just received from FTX this week. Uh, but I digress. I'm ranting and raving like I normally do. I'll keep it simple. Not your keys, not your cheese. Go get yourself a Bitbox O2 hardware wallet and you guys can get yourself 5% off if you use the promo code Bitcoin Made Simple. That is all, no spaces, all lowercase, Bitcoin Made Simple. Go get yourself a Bitbox O2. Now, let's get straight in today's podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today we are here with Luke, and we are going to have a nice, friendly debate with probably GME, Bitcoin, and all of these stuff. So, Justin, shill him on GME. Gotcha. So, the GME thesis is this: is that GME is a stock, one of perhaps many stocks that have been shorted, and that the people who have opened the short position have not accurately or have not been able to close out the short position. This means that sooner or later they will have to close out the short position, and if retail presumably owns a majority of the, um, or perhaps more of the float, the terms on which they'll have to close out the short position will be incredibly beneficial to retail. So this is, you know, where you get the general concept of, uh, of MOAS. To kind of put some more, like, context into that, my suspicion is, is that what happened is that when COVID first started kicking off, the entire sector of retail was probably sold short. What's unique about GME is that there's not a lot of liquidity of shares that are outstanding. Compare that to, let's say, like, you know, um, AMC or even Bed Bath & Beyond, where you probably had the same short bets that were placed against them. But again, due to the uniqueness of the GME position, again, that's the illiquidity of the shares, you're running into a problem. So if this started going on in, let's say, 2020, after COVID kicked off, GME's price started going down and down and down and down because if the shorts could get a capitulation, in other words, to get GME delisted, they would walk away with the money that they sold from selling what they didn't own. And on top of that, they wouldn't have to pay back their obligation because they get money for the shares that they still they don't know they now have to buy back the shares theoretically at a future date. So that was going on. My guess is is that while this was going on, retail was getting their stimmy checks. And so you had to put it, you had a new generation, like Josh, not to pick on you, but like imagine like, you know, you're sitting at home, you know, you're in high school or maybe you're a freshman, sophomore in college, whatever. You have the stimulus check. So you've got house money that you're playing with. You go into Robinhood and you probably will start YOLOing into companies you have an emotional attachment with. That is you grew up with. You're you're certainly not doing any fundamental research or anything like that. The key is this you had this really, really dumb money that was buying in and they saw the numbers going down and rather than selling out, which is what I suspect the, the people who were short algorithms were banking on, you know, the, the psychological effect from all of this, they just kept doubling down and doubling down. And so I think the people who were short finally realized, you know, 
fuck, this isn't going down. What are we going to do in this front? And then this is when you, this is like September, October of 2020. And then when people started FOMOing in, then you started to have a problem. And more importantly, when you had the option chain get out of control, that created a major problem because if you had an option market maker coming in who had to buy shares to manage their internal risk, this was probably directly um, uh, antagonistic to the people who were short. So this takes us to January 2021. You had the sneeze, you know, the spike up, fall back down, and then you had another spike up about what well, was about 30 days later in February. My guess is this, and this gets back into, you know, the, the core of the thesis. The people who were short never closed. This was confirmed by the SEC report. And probably what you saw in January of 2021 was a Volgavana squeeze. In other words, the rate of change or the rate of change got out of control. But the reason that's important is that I suspect that the reason the people are, are able to warehouse their short positions through what I like to call exotic transactions is they might be engaged in OTC deals, swap deals, or whatever, right? And these various steals allow them to maintain and retain their short position and also position themselves to make an incredible amount of money off the volatility. Yes, it's true. We have these quarterly run-ups and that's what we were talking about the other day on Twitter. And these quarterly run-ups are what I suspect the pre-agreed on rebalancing of these agreements, you know, these swap agreements, et cetera. Well, that's that mainly still... just on XRT. Yeah, we're, we're like with, with XRT. XRT needs to rebalance, but keep going. Yeah, but, but you've got these things that go on. And that's why you see this quarterly run-up in spikes. In other words, the people who are short, they can't get out of these uh, of these quarterly run-ups, but they can manage the quarterly run-ups so that it's still very profitable for them because yes, if they have to, you know, buy back GME at $300 a share or whatever high amount, you know, as it sp spikes up, on one hand, but on the other hand, if they're making a ton of money from a change in volatility, that may that can easily offset the price they have to pay to you know reset you know their exotic transactions, and they probably come out with more ahead. So the point is, is that whether you believe MoS is going to happen or not, these volatility cycles I suspect will continue to happen. Now, to the extent of which they happen, that that I don't know, but. We've gotten pretty good, or like the uh, the GME crazy community's gotten pretty good about saying, okay, well, listen, this is kind of like the run-ups, and this is, if we're right, this is what should happen, this is how it should happen, and this is about when it should happen. So again, the next big week for us is after the 17th when you uh, of June uh, for uh, for some other reasons. And so that's the GME thesis. And lastly, I will throw one other thing too, and this is one of the things I think the Bitcoin guys get 100% dead on accurate is that you have a fixed supply cap because in GME land, you theoretically should have a fixed supply cap. 76 million shares or in change should be in existence. And yes, they, they can issue up to a billion shares. But the point is, even though they can issue, they haven't issued. So the point is there should only be 76 million shares. And if you don't have accurate reporting of, the, of who actually owns the shares, you open the door to a, an incredible amount of mischief uh, that, that goes on. Like if you have an exchange that says you have Bitcoin in your account, but they're just crediting you like an IOU Bitcoin and only until you withdraw yes. your Bitcoin to your own private wallet, would you see something like that? No, I'm not saying any exchange is doing that, but I'm just saying like what you see, I think, in the GME land is like this concept in steroids. But this gets back to the blockchain argument where like if you had a clear and transparent way to say, listen, there are however, whatever the number is, these are the number of shares that are in existence. These are the wallets that own them. And if there's some, you know, exotic transaction, if they're pledged as collateral for a covered call, if they're sold short or whatever, this is who it was sold short for. So the point is, is that I'm not saying people shouldn't be able to sell short or anything like that, just that it needs to be accurately and transparently reported. You can't have this bullshit going on of uh, ambiguity where you say something is one thing, but it is really not. So anyways, Luke, that's um, kind of like a quick rundown of how at least I personally see the, uh, the GME thesis and like personally, just, you know, in full disclosure, and Josh, I'd probably speak for you too in this regard. My attitude on this front is, is that until MOAS happens, it hasn't. But until it does happen, if they have to continue to maintain these volatility cycles, which I feel, of course, nothing is guaranteed, but this seems to be a regularly reoccurring thing, you can profit off these volatility cycles in the meantime. And if it just so happens that MOAS does occur, the act of profiting off the volatility cycles will also put you in a very... Uh, 
advantageous position to profit off of MOAS. Now, that, of course, is assuming that, you know, the regulators actually let it go through. I'm sure we're going to talk about that later and a few other things that are going to happen. But anyways, that's kind of like, you know, the uh, the, the, the big picture of how yeah, I see bingo. it. Um, the, the MOAS will happen. Like, it's just maths. Uh, you, you guys are 100% right. Um, I'm, I'm not a GameStop expert for anyone listening in. I'm, I'm a Bitcoin and macro guy, so I really haven't gone into the weeds on GameStop. But you, you guys are 100% right. It's just math. If you, if you if all the retailers simply buy up all the shares of GameStop and you have these enormous hedge funds that are short, you're going to get a short squeeze. And the exact same thing is going to happen like what happened in 2021 when GameStop went up. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was an enormous short squeeze. It was huge. My only question and uh, pushback against GameStop or any stocks that are short squeezed or try to be short squeezed by the retail guys is I believe that the people who um, can change the rules of the game, when they start losing that game, they're simply going to change the rules. And like they did in January 2021, they're simply going to turn off the buy button like they did on Robinhood. Uh, who, or <laughs> and others, exactly. and others, and others. Exactly. It wasn't just Robin Hood. Yeah, exactly oh, yeah. right. <laughs> if they can change the rules of the game, they simply will change the rules of the game. And having a, you touched on another really important point there about verifiable supply. Um, that's why Bitcoin is. I believe Bitcoin is the M O A S. Bitcoin is the mother of all short squeezes because it has a verifiable supply, and we can actually see how many coins are being held and how many coins are being rehypothecated on the exchanges of Coinbase and Kraken and Gemini. But I'll, I'll leave that response there for a minute. Just yeah. one second, because because you'll go into why what incentive the U.S. government might actually have to let MOS run. Oh, before you oh no, no, I'm going somewhere else. I'm going <laughs> right, somewhere right. else. <laughs> Just let's, as do so... incentive, let's do the incentive one, because I, ha I have a good friend, Ben. Shout out to Ben uh, here on the live stream. Um, I hope he's watching in. Uh, when this one gets posted, but um, he he always throws this pushback to me. He says, "Well, this time's different. The the government has an incentive to let the short squeeze happen." So well, with that incentive or not? Incentive. Oh, so Justin will go into the incentive, but it's it's tough. Yeah. Fool me once, shame on you. But uh, fool me twice, like it, it, people will start to look around. And what is the government like? They can change the rules when no one's looking. Think back to what happened with nickel. Nickel. I mean, they shut off the buy button. They said, "Here, take the price. Done." I, I think that absolutely could happen. And and I I. I honestly don't that i'm not betting that that won't happen but as of now these cycles continuously happen and you can make astronomical amounts of money let's say there's a stock that you know every quarter is going to run a hundred dollars uh with pretty relative accuracy i mean if, if you have that kind of data you never want that to end i mean ideally there's never a moas and you can play this cycle forever and, and the stock goes up a hundred dollars every single quarter and you can kind of predict the date but besides that aside um, I think if there's enough eyes watching the situation, it will be very tough to kind of shut off the buy button and uh, prevent this kind of style of running just because the government's worst enemy is the is a raging public. And if, let's say, a humongous um, movement goes on and people do not want this to want them to shut it off, then they'll be forced to let it run. But what incentive do they actually have, Justin? Yeah, so what I would say is like, Luke, I think, you know, I completely agree with with the concept that like, I doubt that the regulatory apparatus wants this to happen. I also suspect that there is a very comfy, um, oh, I had a clever way I said it on Twitter the other day, like, uh, there's a very com it's like the regulators enjoy being in the very comfortable embrace of regulatory capture, you know, with the revolving door and all this stuff. So like, I completely like, 
I, I don't disagree with that. In fact, I, I would affirm all of that. But I would also say is this too, like you want to have like a check on whatever power you have. So like if you want to commit like in a sense, like the fact that you can self custody your Bitcoin or whatever, right, is a check on the exchanges to basically say that the exchanges, you know, we have, have, have the potential to, to be called or whatever, right? I think the same thing is true with officials in the sense that like officials know that, listen, you know, if we we might want to be buddy buddy with you know the firms that we regulate because we want you know the high paying jobs or the cushy jobs we 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 want the revolving door to continue but at the same time if we are so negligent in our duties that the public you know suddenly screams out and cries out for blood we are going to have to do we're actually going to have to do our effing job and like go after and actually you know protect the general public and this means going after you know the very people we want to maintain a cozy relationship with it's not that the I think administrate or the uh, the regulators want to do it. It's just that they are more afraid of the action of not doing it than doing it. So in other words, they're doing the right thing, but only after they've exhausted all other options uh, for that. What so about the actual government though? Like, like go into the actual tax. Oh no, I, I, a Fed caught. Oh yeah, so so I would say so from 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 that point there's that. Now from the other thing too, like I, I don't know if you you caught this the other day on Twitter too, but like I would say there's kind of like you know three things that immediately come to mind in this regard. Number one, you know what's what's the quote from the from the from the Oracle in the Matrix? What do all men with power want? more power. And so I think back to the Federal Reserve, and I note that one of the few constraints that the Federal Reserve cannot do is that they cannot print money directly onto, you know, the balance sheets uh, of you and me into the commercial, uh, you know, banking sector. They need a, uh, they need a go-between. They need someone to help them cross what I call cross the chasm. I will note that if you have a failing DFMU, because if MOAS does actually happen, it's ultimately going to blow up to, to a DFMU, I, I would think, if it happens to the level it's going to happen. So in other words, that the DTC or the NSCC, the OCC, or whatever, right, they're going to have to close up. About these trades and they are going to blow through all the cash they have against you know a complete calamity of a market you know meltdown as well and so one of the things the fed can do with the dfmu is the fed basically say okay listen you know dtc you're going to write us a note or occ you're going to write us a note we will take your note immediately bring it onto our books we'll give you bank reserves onto your books and these bank reserves are what can be used in order to you know close people out of you know whatever silly number people you know 420 million 69,000 or whatever right you know there you go but the key is, is that it gives the Federal Reserve the ability to directly stimulate the market. And I think that that's something that the Federal Reserve wants to have happen. But more importantly, it also gives the um, political cover for that. Because the Federal Reserve says, well, you know, we typically wouldn't want to do this. But, you know, we kind of can. And, you know, if this helps, you know, we'll, we'll do it. But only if you guys ask for it. You see, like, they, they, they set it up exactly how, how they want it to be. So that's the first thing of whatever there. So if you have a tremendous, you know, windfall that comes through to a bunch of people, like, now you've got suddenly a tax windfall that's going to accrue to the government, you know, for short-term capital gains or long-term capital gains. People have held it on there. And, like, the KYC and the AML, like, that's, this has already been done, right? You know, this is just a matter of the brokerages, you know, tracking this stuff. And if it always happens, like, this, this will be tracked uh, for that. So you have a potential windfall to the government. And the last thing is that you have a way to weasel out of the obligation because this can give you a premise. And this gets back to the regulators saying, hey, listen, the reason your retirement went to shit, the reason we're not being able to deliver on you know, the promises, or even if we give you your social security or whatever, the reason not buying as much is look, look at what those idiots at GameStop did. This is all their fault. You know, hey, we, we're just responding to the situation. But basically, it lets them shift the blame from their own um, fecklessness onto, um, onto a third party. So just to be clear, I'm not arguing that like, the regulators want MOAS to happen. Like, that, that is not my point. My point is, is that if they get, I would assume regulators have enough information to see a much larger landscape than you and I can see. And they probably have also come to the conclusion that, listen, if this is inevitable or this must happen, we can at least have it happen in the way that we protect our own skin the most. And so that's what I would say is the argument to saying not necessarily that regulators want it to happen, but that regulators mainly driven by fear 
would let it happen. Well, you mentioned the buy button. Oh, last thing. You mentioned the buy button. I, here's an example of this. If they turn off the buy button again, like if they turn it off once, oops, okay, whatever, right? But if they turn it off twice, then it's like, well, guys, come on, twice. That's just ridiculous. So. I, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I actually haven't heard that argument that um, obviously the financial system is irreper- irreparably broken. As Bitcoiners, we all agree with that. We know, well, we believe that we're going to go through some sort of financial reset um, in the 2020s. We're at the end of an 80-year long-term debt cycle. When you get governments above 130% debt to GDP, it becomes mathematically impossible to actually pay back your debt. Um, Hirschman Capital did a really good report on that and they looked at 52 countries since the year 1800 and they said, hey, look, 90, uh, 51 out of 52 countries that have reached debt to GDP of 130% have defaulted on that debt. So we know that we're in a situation where the uh, current government, the United States, as well as lots of many large governments all around the world are in a mathematically undeniable position where they need to reset their balance sheets in one way, shape or form. As Bitcoiners, we've always believed that we're just going to get the blame for uh, crushing the financial system. When the reset comes, the Bitcoiners have always said, yeah, we're just the, the regulators are just simply going to blame Bitcoin. They're going to call us financial terrorists. Um, oh, it was the Bitcoiners yeah. who broke the financial system. But I'd never actually heard the argument they're going to blame the game stoppers. Um, so they let the GameStop short squeeze go and they say, no, 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 the reason that Melvin Capital and all these big hedge funds went broke uh, wasn't because they were over leveraged. It was the evil GameStoppers. I like that. I think that's, um, yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, I, I do think it's probably a higher uh, probability that someone like Russia uh, gets blamed for breaking the financial system. I think Russia is a much easier scapegoat than your own citizens, making your own citizens domestic terrorists because they're buying a stock. Um, I think the big evil Russia man over there, uh, Putin, um, I think he's probably going to get the blame before GameStop. But I, I do like that argument. What were you going to say, Justin? Oh, yeah, no, I was going to say, too, is that um, Russia's, a, Russia's the curveball in all this. Cause I don't know if you caught this, but Russia formally defaulted or there was the, there was a default event. It was, only, it was a small amount, like it's like maybe like one and a half million dollars, which is, you know, relatively small, you know, in the scheme of things. But it was um, it just happened. um two or three business days ago. But I would also note too that, you know, the last time back, or at least in the 98, you know, um, the reason LTCM blew up, which was an over-leveraged hedge fund, was because Russia defaulted internally on their own bonds. And LTCM never thought that would happen. So again, you you see, you know, uh, echoes of the past uh, going through. Exactly. It's always a dollar shortage. Whenever there's a dollar shortage in the world, you get massive blow-ups. So we had a dollar shortage in the late 90s. Uh, Russia defaulted and you got like uh, long-term capital management going bankrupt. Same thing in yeah. the uh, 80s with the Latin American debt crisis. And same thing today. We have a dollar shortage in the 2020s. Um, so uh, strap yourselves in. I think a lot more volatility is coming in the next couple of months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, up. absolutely. And that, <laughs> yeah. I think that'll be very interesting. And when, when there is fragility in the system, I just think it'll be much harder to manage a short position because uh, collateral is kind of what is back in the entire system and confidence. And I want to go into that in, in uh, Bitcoin, in a sense, because what is actually backing Bitcoin? And it is the same thing that's back in the dollar and it's confidence. Uh, do you do you have any like what else? What else is actually backing Bitcoin besides the confidence of the people using it? Yeah, so uh, the thing that's back in Bitcoin is an immutable and unchangeable and unfuckable monetary supply. So there's 21 million Bitcoins and that will never be changed. I think that's completely different to the US dollar because the government could simply uh, print 80% of all the dollars that have ever existed. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, people are using the dollar because they have confidence in it. 
the same thing with Bitcoin. People are buying Bitcoin because they have confidence that Bitcoin is potentially going to be future money. And, and I, I don't disagree that it won't be, but it is still the exact same backing that is just a psychological confidence that is allowing them to use it. And if people did want to change the rules of the game, it is theoretically possible to change the rules of the game of Bitcoin if they got over 51% of the notes. And, and what happens if there was a confidence-breaking um, situation, just like what would happen in, in the US dollar? Because like the dollar can print in Infinitely, people lose confidence in the dollar and Gresham's law kick in where people no longer want to hold them. What happens if 51% of the nodes get taken over by a government and then uh, the confidence in Bitcoins gets lost? Yeah, so you can uh, take over 51% of the miners and perform a 51%... Uh, uh, I can't even think of the word. What is it? Uh, 51%, I think it's 51% attack. 51% attack. Call, yeah, I think it's... yeah. Sorry, boys, I'm a little bit lack on a little bit short on caffeine this morning. But to actually change the rules of Bitcoin, you need to get I think it's well over like 95% of the nodes to actually agree to a soft fork or a hard fork onto the Bitcoin system. So to actually take over 95% of the 200,000 yeah, nodes that are distributed yeah, all around the world, very, very slim possibility. Yes, it's a possibility. Uh, but very, very slim in my eyes. Um, yeah. And obviously, when you when you change the rules as well, if a government were to uh, change the rules and so, let's assume that they got 95% of the nodes, well, what they do is they're not actually changing the rules of Bitcoin for myself. They're changing the rules of Bitcoin that they want to play in. So they are saying, I'm updating my software to these set of rules. They're not actually changing the, the set of rules that I'm following and the software that I'm using on my node. Over, my, over here on my node, I will still, I will reject the soft fork that the, that the adversary government proposes. But do you think, do you think the majority of the people will? Because let's say the people yes. now that love Bitcoin, they do it for the like philosophical reasons. We're all libertarians though, and, and we believe in freedom and, and liberty. And most, mo the majority of people don't though. They don't actually care too much about that. They, they are personally just a trend following and will do what the crowd says. Do you not think if the government was telling them, hey, this is what is good for society. In fact, this is ethically right. You should get a shot or you should blame a Russia man is bad and everyone will just go along with it. So what is to say that in 50, 100 years, we will not be in the exact same situation with Bitcoin? Putin's price hike. Is that right, Josh? Putin's yeah, price yeah, exactly. hike. That's, that's the reason for inflation. It's all Putin. You're 100% right. Uh, the majority of the people or the masses, they will simply default to what's easiest, what's most popular, and um, they're, 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 herd, they're, herd, they're herd people. Um, but I would propose that the 200,000 people running the uh, Bitcoin nodes all around the world that connect via the Tor network, um, I would say that they're probably uh, very self-sovereign and they will reject this kind of collectivist ideology. For now, but what happens in the yeah. future? Because because what what is our system right now? Right now we have the the corporations and the government working in tandem to grow in power and uh, and kind of just making everyone richer and richer at the very top. But how will that not potentially happen with Bitcoin and the government? Let's say let's say these nodes, th th this layer of uh, nodes are all very libertarian minded. Let's say, but then they die off, and then their children in their children's turn get that power and control, and and then they want more and more, and we. How do you know we will not get into an exact same situation like this in, in the future? Because I would almost 100% guarantee you we will in, in one way, shape, or form. 
Yeah, so they can fork off. Um, they can fork off the Bitcoin network and do whatever they want. Um, you can hard fork and soft fork Bitcoin, like uh, Roger Ver did in 2017. Uh, but the as long as the economic majority actually acts uh, within um, its incentives to preserve its own capital, uh, it doesn't matter who who wants to change the Bitcoin rules. They will get wrecked. Uh, Bitcoin cash is down 99.99% against Bitcoin since 2017, and you know I think this is kind of the example we're talking about. Uh, they tried to fork off the network and change their rules. As long as the economic majority of the network decides, you know what, no, I'm actually rejecting that hard fork or that soft fork that you're proposing, evil government or the whatever. Uh, That's what I'm saying, though. In the future, I don't think people, because most people will just follow the herd. And if the government is telling you in, in the social medias, everyone is telling you, oh, this is for the greater good. What do you actually think if today that exact same situ happen, situation happened, the majority of people would not say, oh, Okay, government. Here, I'll, I'll I'll let you change the rules. It's certainly something to watch, and I don't know how. I uh, mean, I don't even think that will happen in our lifetime. But mm. I'm just saying this is not perfect money because I think we will get in the exact same situation, maybe a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years in the future. Definitely not perfect money. Nothing's perfect. Bitcoin's oh, just I, the absolutely. best we've had for it, the it, past it, it, I, I, years. I completely agree with you. It is the best alternative to the situation that we have. Mm. But yeah. I, I think a lot of people say that this is a panacea and uh, we'll, we'll be we'll living in harmony for the rest of our lives. But I, yeah. I, I wildly disagree with that. Let me just jump in for one second here, because like, so here's the thing. Like, um, let me let me let me defend Bitcoin for a second. Like, Josh, so like. If, if everyone decides to change, everyone decides to change. It's like what it would have been Franklin say, you know, after the uh, um, whatever, the Declaration of Independence or whatever, you know, there was a quip that Franklin said, like, what type of government, someone asked him, a woman asked him, like, what kind of government will we have? To which he responded, well, a republic, if you can keep it. And I think the same thing is true on this. So I would say this is one of those things where I myself have seen people go after Bitcoin from some like pie in the sky scenarios. And the answer is, well, okay, yeah, of course, that's that's a potential threat vector, but it, it might be um, important, but it's not the most pertinent one that we've got right now. So I would say that, like, this gets back into, you know, people have to, you know, defend and, you know, have to understand what, what's really going on here. And again, I would kind of put that as a, that might be a problem for future Bitcoin, but I don't know if that's like a problem like right right now for, for immediate Bitcoin is how I would kind of think about that. But I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a fair point. Definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, these risks, um, we're well aware of it. I, I, don't, I don't think Bitcoin's going to be a panacea. I don't think Bitcoin's perfect money. Bitcoin's just the best money we have had in 5,000 years of monetary history. And I believe it is inevitable that we do transition to a Bitcoin standard just purely because of economic <laughs> incentives will take over. And when people do the work and they do 10 hours of research on Bitcoin, um, there's no going back. Um, once you're down the rabbit hole, you're down the rabbit hole. And when you see how superior Bitcoin is to the other 9,000 cryptocurrencies and all the other forms of money that we use over the past 5,000 years, it's uh, it's pretty undeniable to become a Bitcoin maximalist. But I'm sure well, we'll what, what happens if Bitcoin becomes economic disinformation, though? Ex elaborate. So, 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 well, like right now, uh, we can't even say things on YouTube, as I'm sure you're aware, if you're talking about medications or if you're talking about a certain wars that are going mm. on right now, because because that pe that person or thing is looked at as horrible and evil. What happens if that same incentive goes on to to Bitcoin, that anyone using Bitcoin is an anarchist and they are cruel and, and they want people they want babies to die? So what happens yeah. if, if everything that we see going on with Russia or uh, medications, it, it gets pushed on to, to Bitcoin? Yeah, um, I think that day's coming. I jokingly call myself an uh, economic terrorist in some of my writings. I think I call myself, <laughs> That's uh, a good line. I've titled a couple of papers, the ramblings of an economic terrorist in the future. Um, I think that day's coming. I think governments could potentially certainly blame Bitcoin for a lot of things that are coming um, with the collapse of the fiat 
cryptocurrency system that we're operating on. Um, I just believe every single government that has tried to ban Bitcoin in the past, um, every single time they've banned, demonized, uh, try to criminalize Bitcoin within their country, adoption rates actually go up. Um, so that's Nigeria, Pakistan, um, Iran, Venezuela. Every single one of these governments have tried to ban Bitcoin, have tried to criminalize Bitcoin, and Bitcoin adoption rates actually go up. Why does that happen? A lot of people ask. Because Bitcoin is unstoppable. You can't ban math. You can't ban code. You can't chase down and find 200,000 distributed nodes all around the world that are currently voting and running the Bitcoin code and the Bitcoin ledger um, that all connect via Tor. It's mathematically impossible to simultaneously find all of us crazy, laser-eyed psychopaths yeah. <laughs> that are running the Bitcoin code in our basements. Um, well, they so can just look I, at I, I think They're going to come. It's, yeah, they look on Twitter. They'll find yeah. me easily. Um, but I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just think even government bans something, that's an admittal of defeat. A government oh, yeah. No, no. And, and, and I, yeah. I would give pushback to myself there. Like, look at the drug market. It's one of the most profitable exactly. uh, markets in the entire world because it's illegal. Exactly. And the, the big example I use is actually uh, BitTorrent. So the government's been trying to ban Bitcoin, BitTorrents for the past 10 years, and that's a perfect representation of what Bitcoin is. BitTorrent is a distributed computer system around the world that simply uh, shares files between computers. And the government can't stop it because it's a decentralized, distributed network of computers sharing information with each other. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's a yeah. decentralized system. And that's the key thing that makes it unfuckable and uh, resistant to nation state level attack that cryptocurrencies don't have because they're not decentralized like BitTorrent and like Bitcoin. Okay, so if you two ladies have finished, you know, batting around, you know, the uh, silly little criticisms of Bitcoins, <laughs> do you want to see like the real? Do you want to see like the real? Let's go. The real criticism? Let's do it. So uh, Bitcoin. So Luke, um, this is the, my personal take on Bitcoin is this, like, I think Bitcoin's done a lot of things, or it, it, I think a lot of good has come from Bitcoin in the sense that it's educated a generation and, and more than a generation on the concept of sound money. It's, it's turned people into this concept of you really want to have, you know, set parameters uh, of, um, for example, like your, your fixed supply is a good example of this. But as far as it being, you know, world money, I, I, I do not think Bitcoin is going away. So let me say that really clearly, but nor do I think Bitcoin will reach the lofty ambitions that the true believers, you know, hold for it. So several examples of what I mean by this. If you're going to have Bitcoin be a reserve or whatnot, how would you say or how would you develop a bond market around Bitcoin? And here's what I mean by that. Because like if you let's say Bitcoin gets adopted, you have the S curve, you know, continues to improve and suddenly everyone in the world is using Bitcoin. Well, no one's going to want to sell their Bitcoin. They want to be going to borrow against their Bitcoin, which makes perfect sense because the price of the price is going up. But the thing is, as great as that's going to be for a lender who can like lend out or lend value against their Bitcoin, it's going to be as bad for a borrower because let's just say the honest to God appreciation rate of Bitcoin is numbers on my back. So let's say it's 25% per annum, probably more, but let's just to keep my math simple, 25%. So if you want to borrow against this, let's say that, you know, like you're trying to start like a factory, like you're, let's say you're a small business owner or whatever, right? Like you have a legitimate thing. Well, if you borrow and let's just say like you're, you're a kick-ass operator, but let's say you can only juice, you know, your return of capital to 15%. And let's say you've got a great idea making widgets or whatever, right? Well, you don't want to ask the person who you're borrowing from, you know, the person who owns Bitcoin to lend you less than what they would get by just sitting on Bitcoin because, you know, as as Bitcoin appreciates as a pressure cooker, that's one thing. But at the same time, you've got to unlock this capital so people can borrow against it. And the business's standpoint is they're not trying to you know, be a dick either. But like if they're only making 15% of return, you know, from making their widgets or whatever, right? You know, you've got a huge problem. So I've never actually heard this. And this actually comes from records, by the way. I've never actually heard this addressed. But like how if Bitcoin truly is going to become the standard, it's truly going to become 
and I don't mean to put words in people's mouth, but oftentimes when I hear people talk about Bitcoin, especially the believers, they use the word the, for example, the standard or the reserve versus a reserve. Like if they just said, oh, hey, listen, I think this is going to be a store value that oh, one of many that people will use. Like I no no issues with there. It, it's it's the the it's the the that, you know, not triggers me, but it's like, no, no, there, there, there's something wrong. Something wrong with the. So the anyways, Bitcoin that's Bitcoin standard, Justin, the Bitcoin yeah, yeah. standard. Well, there's going to be many digital assets. Uh, I suspect that'll be out there. But um, the, the, that'd be the question I would ask for um, uh, for, for for Bitcoin guys. Though, is that like so? This is, this is the big picture. Of what I'm saying is like I think Bitcoin so far has proven, although it has been volatile. But again, like calling Bitcoin volatile is like calling the sky blue or water wet. Like if this is shocking to you. Like no, this isn't. Bitcoin's fault. This is this is on you for not understanding one of the most basic concepts of the space. But the the, the question then boils down to number one: How does Bitcoin um, continue to grow, especially if people want to borrow against it? If the rate of appreciation in Bitcoin makes it illogical to lend against, or it, it makes it illogical for a business who just needs something to borrow against, if they can't you know manage uh, uh, enough return on their assets in order to meet you know the the uh, increase or uh, the uh, the uh, the loan percentage would be demanded by someone yeah. lending against their Bitcoin. And the second thing yeah. is, you know, from the big picture, Bitcoin seems like, how do you see the rules of Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin, for example, might be a really excellent store of value, but it might not necessarily be the thing that moves forward in terms of, let's say, like handling like day-to-day -day tra -day transactions or um, handling, you know, like, um, like oddball things that, you know, digital assets would be ideally suited for, but just not as a store of value. Like think like Sailor's argument, you know, Sailor talks about, you know, well, Bitcoin can be here, the dollar can be here, or whatever the dollar becomes can be here or whatever, and so on and so forth. Because I think Sailor does a really good job of, you know, um, ferreting it up. Anyways, th those would be like kind of my like, two first questions. Yeah, a, a lot to unpack there. Uh, they're great questions. I love it. I think the only reason we call it the Bitcoin standard is because throughout the past 5,000 years of monetary history, uh, money or store of value has typically been a winner take all. So whether that's copper taking all the value of seashells or gold taking all the value of copper and silver, generally store of values have been a winner take all and the superior form of money generally sucks in the, the economic majority or the, the majority of the value that is stored in the inferior stores of value. Uh, so obviously Bitcoin is the superior monetary asset. It's the best form of money we've, we've ever created um, in 5,000 years. And I believe it will suck in all the value of all the inferior stores of values, creating the Bitcoin standard. Um, but anyway, on and, your and just to be clear, that's like the, that's like, you, I, don't, I don't put words in your mouth, but like when you help me understand the word like the, like, are you talking just in the digital asset space? Are you talking like gold commodities? Are you talking the fee? Like how... How big a net do you cast with the word the? Yeah, um, every single asset around the world is trending to zero when priced in Bitcoin. Every single asset, I believe Bitcoin. There's $900 okay. trillion of money out there in the world. I think Bitcoin's going to capture the large majority of that before 2040. Okay, so it's just said another way. When you look at you know an ounce of gold, a barrel of oil, a bushel of wheat, uh, whatever the fiat you know evolves into, if you look at that priced in Bitcoin, the price in terms of Bitcoin will continue to go down because the price of Bitcoin is going up. So in other words, that the same amount of Bitcoin will theoretically buy you, if not, or let's just say exponentially more of whatever the underlying commodity is that you want. Like that, that that's what I hear you saying in, in that. Am I am I correct? Yeah, as Michael yeah. Saylor says, it's going up forever, Laura. It's going up forever, Laura, forever against every single <laughs> asset. <laughs> well, now, now let's tackle the, the lending against question because yes. I think that's let's very look. important. 
that's my favorite question. Um, so obviously, hypothetically, on a Bitcoin standard, we're talking about what will the lending markets and what will the debt markets look like? Um, we might not even get to a Bitcoin standard. I may be wrong. All the laser-eyed Bitcoin maximalists on Twitter could be wrong and we could be living in our laser nice forever. Yeah, the laser eyes will be off. Um, but hypothetically, on a Bitcoin standard, uh, lending, borrowing and debt will look very different to what it looks like today. That's the first kind of step someone must take when imagining how a Bitcoin system or Bitcoin will work. Um, because we're imagining two different wor worlds. We're imagining today um, a fractionally reserved uh, dollar system where we're operating um, with the dollar or fiats at the base. Um, I, I, I think we're... Well Jump in, so, so, jump in. Yeah, sorry. So let me, let me, uh, let me, forgive me, Lord, for doing this. Let me, let me defend the dollar just, just for a second here, right? So this is like taking a page from Brent Johnson's book or whatever, right? As shitty as the dollar is, as much mischief as that goes on right now through rehypothecation, all the other bullshit games that are played, you know, across the sector or whatever, right? There is an argument that the dollar can provide some degree of functionality for conducting economic transactions and creating a, and creating a bond market. Now, you always want to ask, at what cost does this happen? You know, or to to what extent? But the point is, and this is what I would kind of push back against the um, to 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 the Bitcoin guys is that like we have an existing system that, as flawed as it is and as painful as it is, has worked and i use that word very very carefully if bitcoin wants to become and this is where i, I quibble with the word the standard bitcoin has to offer something to answer this question if bitcoin's going up at 25 percent, and let's just say like that that's the just probably more but let me just just pick a number or whatever right how on earth would you unlock value from that in terms of let's say think like you know the monetary pyramid or whatever right how would you borrow against that because if you can't earn more than 25 percent upon like the widgets that you make there's a disincentive to borrow which means that and let's just say the normal let's just say a good rate of return is 15 percent like this is actually going to be incredibly destructive to the economy because what you do is you're taking away the funding market because the incentive to lend and the incentive to or the matched up against the, the peril of borrowing is not going to be adjusted. So, like, like, how do you reconcile these two things? Bitcoin yes, going up at twenty five percent return on assets. Let's say fifteen percent. Yes, I think firstly, the most destructive uh, economic events throughout human history has actually been hyperinflation. Uh, so yes, the dollar's been okay for the, you know, being used as the base money for the past 50 years. Yeah, yeah. okay. But the dollar's lost 99% of its value in the past 100 years. So anyone who saved in dollars has lost 99% of their time and their value. Um, so, and we are headed towards another hyperinflationary event. As good as the dollar is, and I am a dollar milkshake maximalist, um, every single fiat currency that we're using around the world today Today will be worth zero in the next 10 years because um, out of the 750 currencies that we've ever used throughout human history, every single time that we've used a currency that is unbacked by gold, it has gone to zero. So the dollar, the euro, the yen, the Chinese yuan, we're headed that way. So that's the most destructive um, event. I just wanted to put that little disclaimer out there. Um, I don't think Bitcoin lending and Bitcoin borrowing will be destructive towards the economy. It will just simply change the incentives. You're 100% right, Justin. If Bitcoin is appreciating by 25% um, of value every single year, it doesn't make sense to go out there and get a loan if your business or what you're getting a loan for is not providing um, or gaining more than 25% of value a year. So what Bitcoin does is it changes the incentives. Instead of you piling on debt um, at 0% interest rates because you have buddies at the Federal Reserve or Christine Lagarde at the ECB and you can take on unproductive 
um, and misuses of uh, capital um, and just simply going to debt for the fun of it, you Bitcoin reintroduces um, economic consequences for your decisions. If you go out there and if you get a loan that is not outpacing the growth of Bitcoin, you will lose money and there is nobody to give you a bailout on a Bitcoin system. So if Bitcoin is appreciating by 25% per annum, that means that when you go out there and get debt, when you go out there and take on debt on a Bitcoin system, you must be taking on debt to be starting a business that is providing more than 25, that is growing at greater than 25%. Uh, per year. So I think Bitcoin incentivizes productive uses of debt. Um, and it's just going to be a very different system to think about and imagine. But I'll pause there yeah. for a second. I, I think I give you some pushback too, Justin. Like I have thought about that quite a bit. And it, it is, it, you are 100% correct that it, it was economically not realistic to take out a loan if you know that you can't make that type of returns. You have to actually produce more than you consume. And uh, that that is good. But we we it will put some limitations on growth there will be a situation like let's say in the late 80s and then and early in and 90s when we were growing at such an extreme rate uh in a bitcoin standard that would not be possible i i think we would not be able to hit peak growth but we will also not hit those massive uh, swings of these long-term debt cycles where we're having these busts every eight to ten years i think that would just that would get put on such a smaller scale when instead of having this massive growth cycle it will probably be trickle growth and less less um, economic destruction the first writings i ever did was a three-part article series in 2021 and it was actually titled bitcoin is the big bang to end all cycles because i agree josh um when you take out the money printer and when you go onto a bitcoin system you're not going to get these massive 80 year long-term debt cycles where debt is allowed to grow to unsustainable levels because we have a central bank who has a monopoly on money who can artificially blow up these massive credit and debt bubbles throughout the world i actually when we're on a Bitcoin system, I think we're going to have, like you said, Josh, much more sustainable growth. And I would actually argue that you're going to get more growth on a Bitcoin system than you would on the fiat system, despite it being harder to take on debt on a Bitcoin well, I, system. I would, I would put one push. We would not have companies like Uber or Tesla. Well, whether you like Tesla or not, they are actually producing a, a good that is, is very, a, a very good for society now. But that Tesla would not be possible in a Bitcoin standard. Elon Musk would not have been able to grow a business and take out so much debt and be so unprofitable for so long just to now create a, a, a good, a decent business model. I'm just saying we would not have these massive tech companies and we would not have a lot of this uh, these companies that are performing very well today. I, I think we would still have them, but I think that you're 100% right because Tesla's not profitable. It's never been profitable in, t- in its actual life. But I think it would be different. I think Elon Musk would still have brilliant ideas, but he would probably just have to take some different steps to actually make the business what it is. Um, he would probably have to be a little bit more efficient. But jumping Justin, what were you going to say? Oh, yeah. So no, getting back to that, like I would go back to kind of like, you know, one of the uh, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And you're absolutely correct. I would say that, you know, you don't want to have misallocation of capital and the current system we have, you know, I think certainly goes in that direction. But at the same time too, like you can make the same mistake or so it, what's the say it's, it's the opposite side of the same coin, right? Just as you can be too loosey goosey when it comes to extending credit, you can also be too stubborn to, to extend credit. And so again, going back to you know, the 25 example, this is what I'm trying to keep, you know, relatively, you know, zeroing in on this regard, what you're doing is that you are basically saying if it is the, again, that's the word, the standard or whatever, that comes in lending, any business that will be worth something to society 
must meet whatever the appreciation is of the standard. And I fundamentally disagree with that. That's not to say I don't necessarily acknowledge the ineffective misallocation. You can also make the same mistake going in the other direction. And I've never heard that. Again, I'm still not hearing that question addressed. I completely agree that. I think that there is a situation where Bitcoin is a standard, as as Justin loves that word. I I never think it will be the standard. I I think there would be uh, tranches of of layers to that. So there there needs to be a lending pool. And I don't think it will be too realistic. Or I see a situation where once Bitcoin becomes, let's say, a, a money, it won't be appreciating at 20% per annum anymore. Maybe it, it chills out and maybe it starts appreciating at 3 4 5% if it's so massive. Let's say it is that, what, 100 uh, quadrillion or something like that. It's very unrealistic that's still appreciating at 25% per annum. Maybe it slows down to 3 4 5%. Then it is realistic to take out loans in that situation. I actually do. Um, I actually do think when Bitcoin uh, takes over the majority of that nine hundred trillion dollars that's parked around the world, it's going to be priced at somewhere one hundred, two hundred, three hundred million dollars a coin. And I actually like Justin's example a little bit better. I think it's still going to be appreciating at twenty five percent per annum because um, it kind of circles back to what we were saying a little bit earlier about the limitations of growth on a Bitcoin system. Um, I actually think um, Bitcoin's going to uh, greatly appreciate the rate of growth that the global economy has and that's because it's actually going to be a global economy operating on bitcoin system today we have 1.7 billion people around the world who are unbanked because they're not allowed into this gate kept um global economy okay they're kicked out of the the dollar system we've sanctioned lots of countries around the world and they're not allowed to participate to the global gdp but when you actually have a Bitcoin standard, the Bitcoin standard, and everybody around the world who has a smartphone can now participate in the global economy and transact value and send value to everyone around the world, I actually think it's going to greatly increase the rate of growth and the GDP growth that a lot of people, um, I, I, I think, underestimating could be on a Bitcoin standard because for the first time in human history, every single person on planet Earth can actually participate on a Bitcoin standard. And most importantly, have their value preserved like a lot of the a lot of people say oh why are people in africa poor why are people in latin america poor i was just in peru last week and they're some of the hardest working people i've ever seen a lot of people say why is the gdp of peru so low why is the savings rate in peru so low i wouldn't say it's because they're not hardworking people i would say it's because the government's very corrupt and they have access to a money printer where they can significantly debase the uh, peruvian solace um, and they can extract value from their citizenry when the peruvian people can actually adopt a bitcoin standard their hard work and labor can actually be stored in a uh, true form of money that can't be debased by a corrupt government so i i actually see i, I don't think growth can be limited on a bitcoin standard i think it's going to be 25 30 35 40 percent per year in 10 Sorry, minute increments curve. in 10 minute increments <laughs> at 60 minute confirmations yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it baby l2 l2 we'll scale it layers justin don't you worry about that it'll be lightning it'll be liquid well, the, the, the problem with layers, so like, again, like this is one of those things where like, Sailor put out, I think a tweet yesterday or whatever. And like, I, I really appreciate Sailor. I mean, there's some things I disagree with him on, but like, I appreciate him. And like, I get very disappointed when I see people just trolling. Like, guys, come on, you're not being intellectually like honest here or whatever. Like, if you're, you're going to debate, like at least try to understand. They're like, you know, or, or side note, you don't hear me rant. So here's where I want to go with this as far as Bitcoin goes. Look, you, you repeatedly have mentioned the concept of, of, a, of a fixed supply or whatever, right? And I agree with you that that's pretty critical. Uh, one of the things that I've learned you're probably too young to remember the days of dial-up internet. Do, do you remember having to like, you know, 
Do you, okay, yeah, but like you remember this once upon a time where you would have to like use that. We had this thing called a modem, you know, that's dial up. And then if you picked up the phone, it was just a horrible experience. So the point is, is that dial up uh, internet was replaced by broadband when it became, you know, quicker and cheaper. And so my argument has always generally been that quick and cheap will beat out slow and expensive. And the second like kind of corollary to that is that the much as much as you can build something into the base layer, now, of course, you can't build everything into the base layer, but the much you can, as much as you can build into a base layer, probably the less complexity you have. And complexity can be a killer because every time you add a layer, L2, even an L3 solution or whatever, right, you, you get complexity added to the situation. In other words, you know, it's, well, it, 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 problematic, or problems can happen, especially if there's negative emergent properties that come up. So the reason I mention this is that you, you've, you have mentioned before that, you know, it's very important to have a fixed supply. Perhaps you see where I'm going with this, but like if you want a coin, you know, that can act as like a very quick way to do reconciliations, you know, across, you know, the globe or whatever, right? With a fixed supply cap that's quick and cheap to send. Can you think of anything besides Bitcoin that can accomplish that task? Objectively, yeah, so, objectively and, better. Yeah, so the innovation that Bitcoin's created is it's unchangeable, unfuckable money. And there's simply, there's limitations that come when you want to be unfuckable and unchangeable. So that is 10, uh, that is 10 minute block times and that is one megabyte blocks. That's the sacrifice that Bitcoin has chosen to actually um, be the first and only form of money that exists in the world today that is unfuckable, unchangeable and has a secure and verifiable um, base layer. So let me, that's another follow-up question on that front. So you would say that like, um, well, consider like XRP, for example, with what is it, there are 100 billion supply? That's not changeable. In fact, actually, it keeps going down because, you know, XRP is burned, you know, for, you know, the transactions. So my question is, is that if one, so if one myopically wants to say, and so the answer is you have to think beyond myopically. So I already know what, what the answer is going to be to this one, but just as a thought experiment, it was just the unchangeable supply. Why not XRP? And it's also because XRP unchangeable is, rules. The unchangeable rules. So XRP has uh, 35 nodes on the network that can probably change the rules whenever they want to. And um, XRP also had like an enormous pre-mine. So the first 35,000 blocks on the XRP ledger, if you try to look it up, if you even can run a node, you'll find that you can't actually see the transactions in the first 35,000 blocks. That was because Brad Garlinghouse or garlic bread, whatever you want to call him, um, he pre-mined the first 35,000 blocks and gave him and himself um, a large uh, portion of the XRP supply. So I would believe that XRP simply mimics the current uh, financial legacy system where the, uh, the gatekeepers and the small handful of people who can change the rules uh, simply print themselves a shit ton of tokens and they uh, periodically sell and dump the tokens whenever XRP goes up in price. But, but as far as changing the rules go, as long as there's a governance process that's adhered to and the governance process has to be voted on by the various nodes running. And, and if anyone can run a node, which to the best of my knowledge, anyone can run a node and there's there's just like you know with bitcoin you can run a full node you can run a light or whatever right same thing with x they, they call them something else but the, the concept remains the same if you want to make the governance argument i would say that in order to make that intellectually honest you've got to say well yes you know if the various nodes all all agree to do whatever change whatever change they want to do will be done but i would say that also applies to bitcoin that also applies to eth i mean that that applies to the u.s constitution so um i would say that like Yes, but that seems to me exactly how it works as well as how, you know, the others, uh, how the other guys work too. And as far as, you know, the, uh, the pre-mine goes, again, I would say it's like, well, yeah, that, that's what XRP, that's what the ledger was created from its inception. And it is true that the first week of the XRP ledger, you know, due to a, uh, at least supposedly due to a server error, you know, that, that data has been lost to time. But beyond that, since then, the ledger itself has stayed up, it has run. And then I guess the question I would have to, to you, Luke, is um, what about having, let's say, that first week of data would otherwise preclude 
um, XRP from functioning as just, let's say, a, a medium of exchange. In other words, you just buy in and then you buy out, right? Like you're, not, you're not trying to store value in XRP. You're just simply trying to move value through XRP. Um, you're not actually moving value with XRP because it provides no value, in my opinion. Um, you're just moving shit across the internet instantly and fast. It doesn't mean you've created an innovation because there's no underlying value. The uh, topic of nodes, um, the, the reason why Bitcoin nodes is different to any other blockchain is because every, any anybody around the world can actually run a Bitcoin node and participate in running a Bitcoin node. That's the reason there's 200,000 nodes around the world because the Bitcoin blockchain um, is actually so small um, and that is a sacrifice that we, we decided to make in 2017. We said no, we are keeping the block size um, the same size it is, 10 megabytes, one megabyte, whatever you want to call it, one megabyte, so that when you keep the block size small, you keep the blockchain small. When you keep the blockchain small, that means anybody can actually afford to download a copy of the ledger. Bitcoin blockchain is like 300 gigabytes. Anybody can download that on a laptop and anybody has downloaded that on a laptop. That's why there's 200,000 nodes all around the world. Um, but when these other blockchains, they decide they did the opposite to what Bitcoin did in 2017. They said, yeah, we're going to have enormous blocks. We're going to try to be the fastest and the cheapest blockchains around the world. But in doing that, they significantly increase the size of the blockchain and that significantly centralizes the protocol. I just had a quick look here on Ripple and apparently every block in Ripple is like 2.4 gigabytes in size. Obviously, there's hundreds of thousands of blocks. So that means the entire Ripple blockchain must be huge. I actually couldn't find the exact number, so I'm not going to quote a number that I'm not 100% sure on. But I'm assuming the reason that not everybody is running a Ripple node is because the blockchain is enormous. And that obviously centralizes the protocol. And the only people who can run a node and participate in governance of a protocol are people who can afford a $100,000 specialized computer or data facility. I'll tell you what, Luke, here's what I'll do. Um, so my, my response to this would be that anyone can run a node and set it up. So let me do this. I will set up. Uh, I will set up my computer to run. Um, to run it, and I will show you. Like, listen, you know, I can now participate and vote in that regard. I, I would also argue too that the reason. So the, the, the inherent to the XRP network, there, there's no mining or anything like that, right? You know, the uh, the transaction fees that are burned for each XRP transaction, they, they just get burned. You know, no, no one actually gets it. So the economic incentive to actually running a node and, you know, spending, you know, the man or the electricity, et cetera, you know, wear and tear on the components is the fact that you just want to, like, you know, purport the network. It's not like you get, like, mining fees or transaction fees or anything like that. So you you could make an argument that, and this is probably the, the strongest, I would suspect the strongest argument, is that, you know, there's not the direct economic incentive you have to run a node for the lack of mining or anything um that you get from that for the Here, can i hop right um yeah. i i would say i i hate xrp from a philosophical point of view but what they do have is the same thing that dollar has and they are actually a partners with the world economic forum and at davos and they are buddy buddies with all these super centralized uh quote unquote um i would consider evil people so yes i i economically and philosophically disagree i mean uh, i just philosophically disagree with them but as we were saying before, with the herd mentality, people are going to do what's easiest and what they are told to do for the most part. What happens if we are told to transact in XRP? Me and you would hate it, but we don't have an option. We, we do not yeah. have really the, the, the maybe a small portion of people want to use Bitcoin. But what happens if the governments and the medias are telling us to transact in XRP, even if it is shit? 
you, just to be clear, like you, you wouldn't like the, the entire premise is that you wouldn't actually transact in it. So the thing is like you're not supposed to be even be able to see it or whatever, right? So to to your point or whatever, right? Like you mentioned, you put shit in and shit out. Okay, well, well let's turn with this example. Let's say that XRP was literally backed by fertilizer. Not the best example, seeing as how much fertilizer has gone up, but just you know, let, let, let's work with the visual analogies of it, right? It doesn't matter like what the asset is, but if you have let's say like a three to five second settlement time, which is what it takes to close an XRP, you know, ledger block or whatever, right? If you have that, you jump in and then you jump out. So if you need to move money from, let's say, like, you know, yen to, you know, uh, souls or whatever, right, you're able to do that. You, you just need this neutral medium of exchange, you know, in the middle. And my argument is that quick and cheap will always beat out slow and expensive. The reason that SWIFT and correspondent banking will fail is because correspondent banking, and I guess SWIFT to an extent, is slow and expensive. And quick and cheap always beats slow and expensive. Bitcoin on the base layer, objectively, is slow and expensive. Now, in Bitcoin's defense, as you accurately and clearly articulated, there's a reason for it. I think the reason is because it helps give Bitcoin the confidence. And I think the confidence is Bitcoin's superpower. I do not think Bitcoin should give that up. Let me be really, really clear on that point. Like, if I had to vote on that back in the day, I would have done the exact same thing. I'm not trying to say, like, the wrong decision was made. But what I am trying to throw out here is that, like, listen, depending upon the application of what you're trying to do in the digital asset space, I think that you're going to see different digital assets come up. And this is why, like, I, I prickle at the word the standard. You know, like, no, no, no. I, I don't think that's that's the way to that's the way to think about it and so again this gets back to you know the um the custom design of what it was designed to be you know three to five second settlement time because if you just want to quote to trade in or trade out bam there you go and even if you do say you know the actual underlying value is worth shit the answer is well who the fuck cares you know it just has to be you know you just need this three to five second stability time in order to move something through you get in and then you get out yeah i i would just say in bitcoin like the the innovation is an unfuckable unchangeable base layer out of bitcoin and all the other nineteen thousand cryptocurrencies bitcoin's the only thing that has an unfuckable unchangeable base layer and we always said from day one this is the sacrifice we're making a slow base layer layer one we will scale and we will scale fast and instant transactions at layers so layer twos and we yeah. uh, we currently have nation states using the lightning network like we have el salvador literally using the lightning network to facilitate global trade within their nation and that i i, I think it's glaringly obvious that that's the way uh, Bitcoin adoption is going to go into the future. Your retail transactions that are fast and instant are going to be done on the Lightning Network. Countries are doing it right now, and you're going to pay more fees for, uh, to have a settlement on the base layer, the base chain. And it's going to be slower, but you're going to pay, and you're going to be paying higher fees, but that's simply the way I envision the Bitcoin standard. I, I just think that's um, the, the settlement on the main chain is going to be expensive, it's going to be slow. But you maybe do that once a week, once a month if you're a merchant and all of your daily fast and instant transactions will be done um, on the Lightning Network. Let's go with the thesis that Bitcoins continue to go up. So it would be, just give me a number and uh, whatever number you take, I'll accept like the average annual appreciation. Of course, there's going to be volatility, but on average, Bitcoin will go up by X amount. Let's do 25. We've used that 25. one. Um, okay. Yeah. Like just whatever number you give me is the number I'll use. So it's just like 25 or whatever. Right. So like in this regard, like I would say like as a store of value, again, like this seems to me like the, the ideal rule for Bitcoin, but it seems like you're trying to force like a square peg in a round hole to try to do, to, to do, to go beyond that. And here's what I mean by this. Let's say that you're like a, like a Tesla or whatever, right. Or your G or backup. It makes it seem even more boring. Let's say you're like, you know, an ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, whatever. Right. And you need to, you know, you're building a factory or whatever, or you're a plant or whatever in 
Indonesia or whatever, right? And you need to move over $100 million or whatever we're using as dollars. You need to move $100 million of value from the US to Indonesia. That, that's what has to happen or whatever, right? And so from the corporate treasury side, when you look at this stuff, it's like, okay, well, listen, like, what are the options? Well, we can buy, you know, spot buy, you know, $100 million worth of Bitcoin and then spot sell it in, in Indonesia. If you, got, if you have an exchange that promotes liquidity, or we can, you know, boot off of our own wallets or whatever. But still, again, you've got like this 10 to like, you know, one hour, like, you know, lag times, so you don't know what's going to happen in the interim versus an option where it's like, okay, well, listen, you know, you don't necessarily have to like the underlying, but the fact that you can basically, whatever number you see right now, you've got like to say a guarantee of like three to five seconds of it, like it, it, the, the, the finality will be guaranteed in that regard. And so this is why I say like, not a trigger song, I say it, but like, I, I'm so um, dubious when people use the word the, because I think it is a solution and i think it does i think it feel and it currently is fulfilling a really 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 good role but to say that you're just going to level up like you can do some things with leveling up like i don't know if you're familiar with, with aviation or not but the 737 is a good example of this the 737 was made in the late 50s early 60s it was a great plane but boeing kept re-engineering the 737 versus just making a clean sheet design and so they have just tortured this poor aircraft to death because what they need to do is they just need to do a completely clean sheet design and there were some things that made a lot of sense in the late 50s and early 60s that don't necessarily make sense for like you know modern aircrafts right right now. And so you can Frankenstein something to work, but again, at, at, at what cost? And so I'm not trying to dismiss or not trying to downplay the importance of, you know, of, of layering, because clearly I think that that works. But from like the big, like macro picture, like when, when, when the serious players start playing with this stuff, like they're, they're going, their liquidity needs and the, um, the compliance needs are going to be a far different animal than what currently exists right now. The serious players are already here. Um, we, we we already have examples of what they're using. They're using Bitcoin and they're using stablecoins. For their fast and instant transactions, they're using stablecoins. They're still using the US dollar. And I think they'll continue using the US dollar for a long time until we actually transition uh, onto a Bitcoin standard. What would be the role of banks in the in a Bitcoin world? I, I hope that we're going to see more of like a, a mid 1800s. Um, yeah, yeah, free banking style. Yeah, um, yeah, th th I think that would be ideal. But he here's my question, because right now, with the way the banks work is it is all about collateral and passing off transactions quickly. I mean, extraordinarily instantaneously. Uh, let's say let's say I'm banking with uh, Wells Fargo. Justin is banking with uh, JP Morgan and I need to send him ten billion dollars. I on the liability the dollars are liabilities on the bank's balance sheet. And uh, Wells Fargo is going to take those ten billion dollars of liability and send them to uh, JP Morgan, and but they're going to send an offsetting asset with that. They're going to send, let's say, let's use reserves in this case, because they're probably going to use bank reserves. So they'll send $10 billion of liabilities and $10 billion of assets instantly to JP Morgan. How would this even be possible if it is going to take so much time in a, in a Bitcoin standard? Would, would people have to wait for the, just would, they, would, uh, there, would there be no option but to wait? Or perhaps if I, could just, if, if I could just refine that question just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, because like, I don't understand the, the, the plumbing of Bitcoin too well. I've never, I've, I'm not, I'm not a maxi. Yeah. So, yeah well, help you, Justin. Just, uh, uh, Justin, I think what we're saying, like, this is what I'm, uh, I think we're trying to get to is like, if you're just moving value through something, why does the reserve asset really matter, especially if it's quicker and cheaper to send and you can stay with the base layer? Well, Russia found out very quickly if you try to use or send value or store value um, with people who can freeze your assets, they're going to freeze them and they're going to freeze all $600 billion of your money. Right. So again, the, forgive me, I maybe wasn't clear about the question in my context. When I assume that you're, you're sending a, a transaction through, what you're sending it through is you're sending through something that cannot be frozen. So in other words, no one can, you know, uh, whatever base layer you, you, you are using, you cannot freeze the reserve asset of the base layer. 
So let me exactly. with that. So let me leave that. That would be my question to you with that caveat. Exactly. So if you have friends in the banking system, JP Morgan is good friends with Wells Fargo. Maybe they feel comfortable to take a little bit of a risk and say, "Hey, I'm going to use a centralized stablecoin, a US dollar stablecoin. Um, I'm going to take the risk. I want. I need it there instantly. I need my ten billion dollars to arrive at JP Morgan in mm -hmm. two seconds. I can't wait ten minutes for a very secure, very safe, unfuckable, unfreezable Bitcoin transaction. So I'm going to take the risk because I trust." JP Morgan and I trust uh, Citibank, so I'm going to use a centralized stablecoin. So, I, I, what, that's what would I be the asset in that situation, though? Because if you're taking uh, on the bank's uh, liability side, they, it will still be Bitcoin. Because if they're lending out Bitcoin, they they need to send it. Like like you do not want ten billion dollars of extra liability on your balance sheet. You want something to back it up with it. What would be backing up the Bitcoin if you if you were passing over those liabilities to another bank? Like if if Bitcoin is the standard the, on the on the liability side of the of the bank's balance sheet, it will be Bitcoin. On the asset, it will be the loans and in, in their in their debt. So, if they're passing liabilities to another bank, what will they send as an offsetting asset? I, I don't see why they just don't send the Bitcoin and they just wait. Yeah, but I, I, I think I think it would be the Bitcoin in this example, Josh. Like, okay. Uh, well, let me explain myself. Like, yeah. Right now, dollars on a bank's balance sheet are liabilities. Right now, they have treasuries, they have reserves, and anything. Or, or, and the loan. So the, the loan we're talking about, is the loan denominated in dollars or is the loan denominated in something else? The dollars. Let's, uh, dollars. Okay, so the, the bank has loaned out dollars, and then people no, are depositing Bitcoin at the bank? I'm saying, now. I'm saying as of now, it, they're, they're loaning out dollars. But in the future, if they're loaning out Bitcoins, they will have loans as assets and Bitcoin as liabilities because they, they have the obligation to pay Bitcoin to their to their clients. If you are transferring Bitcoin to another bank, then you are just transferring liabilities. Will, will you have no need for another asset to transact? I think you would just transfer the underlying Bitcoin is what you would do. Problem is when you have like, when you're making a loan in one thing and you've got a reserve asset in something else, like you're loaning out dollars, you've got mm. bank reserves over here or whatever, right? <laughs> on, on a Bitcoin system, just Bitcoin's everything. You're lending okay. out Bitcoin, Bitcoin's your asset and your reserve. But see, now you're back into the problem of this. Is that, let's say you have to wait, like, so back up. So, like, whatever you're borrowing against, so you, you still get back into the 25%, you know, appreciation versus the 15% lending. Like, you know, no one, or why would anybody want, want to borrow against, you know, this? Because, like, you're not going to be able to read, or... The, the, the bar to return on capital is going to be so high that you're going to you're going to weed out a lot of of course you'll have no unproductive things but you're also going to lose out on a lot of productive businesses too. I haven't talked about that. Um, also, no, so you mentioned Russia, you know, going through in that, and I would say like Russia for I mean, if you look at what Russia was doing with their central bank is for the past well, what, five six years they were quietly buying up gold. In fact, all the centrals have been hoovering up gold and more importantly, yeah, I'm repatriating the gold, you know, bringing it back home uh, from that. So I would say that um, I think whatever, and this gets back to the, the big points, like whatever reserve asset you want, like you, you want it to be unfuckable, the, to use the technical term <laughs> for, for that. <laughs> and this is where it gets back to where I would say it's like, even if let's say you have serious doubts about, you know, a store of value, again, I'll pick on XRP in this case, in this particular situation, because we're the one I'm most familiar with from a, um, from a technical standpoint. But even if you think that it's horrible, and even if, you know, oh my goodness, we can't see the first week of transactions, and you know, I'm all hot and bothered because of this, and oh my goodness, you know, all these insiders have taken everything, like all the bad things you can mention, just assume every one of it's true or whatever, right? If you can have instant financial settlement, you know, within let's say three to five seconds at a fraction of a penny or whatever, right? Why wouldn't you opt to use that as a financial institution? I mean, like you, you Luke, you, you make the concept that, you know, the 10 minutes, let's say an hour, you know, there, there, there's so much more in there that, you know, there, there, there's this intrinsic value that, that you get from safety and security. My point is, is in three to five seconds, if it's quick and it's cheap, bam, problem solved. It doesn't matter what the underlying um, 
uh, asset is in this particular situation. I, I just don't see any utility in it. I just think they're going to use dollars. Um, I think they're probably going to use stable coins. That's my. Yeah. That's what I think they're going to use. I don't think they're going to use. Okay. Well, so uh, last thing, um, stable coins. So uh, Luke, one of your early papers, you I think you accurately noted that like how the Fed loves to blow bubbles or whatever, right? And you see the dollar supply increase, and then like if you look in like twenty twenty or whatever, right, in twenty twenty one, probably all those dollars got mopped up in the uh, financial services world. You know, stocks going up and whatnot. What's your take on Tether, particularly Tether's market cap? The increase of Tether's market cap and the correlation to the price of Bitcoin. What's your take on that? Does it ring any bells? Look familiar? Yeah, I, I, I so Tether's backed. Tether's they've been very open from day one. They're just not hundred percent. Oh, oh very, very open. <laughs> yeah. Very open. Uh, I, very open is a stretch. Uh, yeah, okay. Very that that is certainly a stretch. Um, but Tether Tether's been relatively uh, opaque, obviously, but you know, from day one, it's been relatively known that they're seventy percent back. So they're not one hundred percent back like USDC. But wait a minute! Um, if you can't see the first week, I'm oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> giving you a hard time, Luke. <laughs> giving you a hard time. Sorry, <laughs> no, go, no, go. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here yeah. for. Um, um, obviously, mm-hmm. Tether's shady. Like, obviously, it's a little bit shady, but um, they are seventy percent backed for every Tether that's out there, and they're actually doing monthly attestations right now. Since, since well, right now, uh, right now there are, have been a big player that's been liquidating tether if you look at the chart there's been big blocks of one billion dollars being liquidated yeah. from tether what happens if we see a situation where 50 percent of tether get liquidated and there's a situation where tether goes bust what would happen to the price of uh justin i see you yeah. cringing yeah, so it's not so much that it's the confidence. It's, it, it's as long as people think a tether's worth a dollar, there's, there, there's no problem. But if people, for reasons that are real or that imagine, suddenly don't believe this, then there's a problem. So like, it's, it's the same thing with Bitcoin. It, it's the confidence. If the, if the confidence of tether either breaks, tether's going to have a problem. But Josh, I think to you, what you were just saying is like tether, the company tether limited, they've been able to meet, to the best of my knowledge, they've been able to meet redemptions. Like, and, and so give Being credit good. where credit's due. Like, yeah, yeah I think that, that's, they, that's I think the case. Met- I think you're 100% right. Massive whale was redeeming a shit ton tether over the past two weeks. And I think they met like $7 billion or $8 billion redemptions just like that. Yeah. So they're back. Agree on them. They're, they're... on them. I'm just saying, what happens if they don't back that? If, if there is a confidence loss in what happens if tether does go bust? Um, I, I, so I think if Tether goes bust, um, I, or, I or the confidence, the, the, the confidence for whatever odd reason, real or imagined confidence is lost in tether. Like that's, that's, I think the really, really precise way to ask that. We're already watching that. People will choose to use a safer stablecoin, so that's USDC. Um, I think the market cap of Tether's uh, decreased over the past two to three weeks with the whole oh, Luna yeah. stablecoin blow mm-hmm. up. But all of that money is simply moving to USDC, a safer stablecoin that's 100% backed by US Treasury debt. And I think it's very interesting as well that Tether is actually transitioning away um, from using commercial paper and yeah, risky stuff yeah. to back up the US uh, Tether. They're actually buying more and more safer instruments to back the Tether with, which is US Treasury bills. I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, so the redemption. Well, what will yeah. the future look like if we do go on a Bitcoin standard for these stable coins? Because right now they're backing with treasuries. But what happens if we no longer have a debt market in the US? And uh, what what will these stable coins be backed by? So I, I actually think um, we I'm writing a really, really long article on this at the moment. Um, it's uh, titled The Dollar Milkshake or the Bitcoin Milkshake. And I actually think you're going to see uh, US, tra- uh, US stable coins um, partnered up with Bitcoin for a very long time. I, 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 it could be 10 years, 20 years, could even be 50 years that you see the only currencies around the world be Bitcoin um, and US stable coins like USDC and maybe even Tether if they're backed what by will US the, what Treasury. Will USD, what will they be backed by? Like, like what will be, like these stable coins actually be backed by if they're no longer backed by treasuries 
I'm not not entirely sure. I actually see them being backed by U.S. Treasury debt for a long time, and I actually think that's how the yeah. US but but is the, gonna... the situation that you're talking about is, is the Bitcoin standard, where we don't have anything else. Under that circumstance, what are stablecoins backed by? Stablecoins won't exist on a Bitcoin standard because Bitcoin will be the standard. Okay, so there won't even be any stablecoins eventually. All right. All right. So, so let's take this a completely different way. Let's go over your backstory, Luke, and then we'll just kind of start wrapping it up. Like, like, what, like, who are you? Uh, like, give, give me, give me some context to who you are. Okay, um, I'm, I'm 25. We didn't do this in the in our first interview, but a uh, little bit of context. 25 years old, just an Australian bogan. Uh, got fascinated with macroeconomics about five years ago. I was studying at university, um, and I, I dropped out um, to study Bitcoin and macroeconomics full time. But now, what are you doing now? Uh, so right now, obviously, I'm on Twitter. Um, I have a podcast called The Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast, where I'm a co-host with two other dudes. Uh, I write articles for two different Bitcoin, uh, two different Bitcoin companies. I own a social. Um, I don't own. I manage a social media account for another Bitcoin company. Um, I do a lot of writing and researching for Mark Moss. Uh, that's actually how Josh and I initially met because uh, Josh is obviously the researcher for uh, George Gammon, and George Gammon and Mark are very close buddies. Um, so, you um, to, are, are you going to be going to Rebel Capitalist Live with Mark? I'm not entirely sure yet. When bag is that him, again? Bag him. It's it's in June, uh, late June, like I think the 25th or something like that. Me and Justin will be there, and we'll have to get get some oh, beers or something. That'd be uh, amazing. I haven't met yeah, Justin yeah. in person, so that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that, uh, so so try, try and convince Mark to let you go. I mean, he, like I'm oh. sure he'll say yes. I'm gonna do my best. Oh, so, so now we'll do match made in heaven because right now Luke is in an extreme predicament where he is in the U.S. <laughs> on a extreme visa. So and that's running out in 90 days, if I'm correct, right? You were in Peru to kind of to to fight off the demons and to become legal again. So he is looking for a wife or husband. It doesn't matter. He just needs to get married. He will he will marry just about anyone. So if there is anyone that is lonely and looking for a husband, I think that is um, the appropriate terminology that Luke would use for his gender then please let us know in the comments. Reach out to him at Twitter, on YouTube, absolutely anywhere. He's probably on Tinder as well. Anywhere where he can find a match made in heaven. I, I think that about uh, I, wraps it up. I, I didn't know that was coming. If anyone can put up with my uh, massive head for radio, as I call it, and my uh, economic ramblings, uh, <laughs> hit me up. And, <laughs> Phil, oh, and, I don't and even he, know and he said got. prenups are the only way that he is signing the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's getting my Bitcoin, baby. Nobody's nope. getting my Bitcoin. All right, fellas, uh, thank you very much for coming, Luke. If you guys are not following Luke, I would strongly suggest you unsubscribe to us. So thank you, guys. Uh, we'll throw up everything, and we'll see you on the next one. So what did you guys think of that one? Let me know down in the comments below whether you want to see more debates on the channel. Um, I had great fun over on the Macro After Dark channel. I highly recommend you getting around them, giving them some love. A um, little bit of housekeeping. Feel free to give the Bitcoin Made Simple YouTube channel some some love. You can see here we're approaching the 500 subscribers. We'd, we'd love to hit 1,000 by the end of the year. So we appreciate all the support that you guys give us. So thanks again for that. Be, feel free to like and subscribe and, you know, all that cringy stuff again final shout out to today's show sponsors hodling apparel go get yourself an ungovernable t-shirt that's what we are as bitcoiners we're fucking ungovernable oh, it's probably probably shouldn't swear on air but that's what we are ungovernable so hodling apparel go and check them out bitbox o2 hardware wallet because you're ungovernable and because you have 
fuck you money that the state can't seize, go and put it into a Bitbox O2 hardware wallet, okay? Again, Bitbox O2 from shiftcrypto.ch, not your keys, not your cheese. Go and grab one and get 5% off with a promo code, Bitcoin Made Simple. Again, your promo code for hodling apparel is Bitcoin Made Simple 20 for 20% off. And Bitcoin Day Denver, Come and say hi to me in uh, Colorado, Denver. I will be traveling there. You can come and tell me how much you hate me. You can come and <laughs> tell me how much you want to, you don't like why I'm such a hyper bull. Just come check out the conference. It should be an absolute blast. Again, you can get 10% off your tickets if you use the promo code Luke. That rhymes with puke. It's Luke. It's as simple as that. L-U-K-E. That gets you 10% off your tickets. Anyway, guys, this is me signing off. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you guys in the next podcast.